Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled Zidane and Trumpism. Now I'm aware that that's a very controversial headline and a controversial topic. So let me clarify what I mean. I'm not saying for a minute that Zidane is a supporter of Trump or holds any of his ideology. <laughs> what I'm curious about is the way how Donald Trump effectively turned himself into a brand and then used that brand to ascend to the White House. And really how it relates to Zidane is that Zinedine Zidane has just won three Champions League titles in a row for Real Madrid. Now, the the European Cup, since it was rebranded the Champions League, hadn't been retained by any team. So that's the you know, Barcelona teams, the AC Milan teams of the 90s, the Real Madrid team, the Galacticos. No one had been able to retain the trophy. And yet we've had a situation where one manager has just done a three-peat. And was the assistant manager for you know the other Real Madrid Champions League. So that's someone who's been a part of four out of the last five Champions League wins for Real Madrid in a major coaching role and yet Zidane isn't considered a top level brilliant manager I don't think he's been compared to you know Ferguson, Ancelotti, Mourinho, Guardiola he's not considered in that league since he has been since he's left the job since he's resigned there's been no major interest by any national team by any domestic side that I'm aware of and so that really, really begs some questions, is that why has this sort of unprecedented managerial success effectively led the football world cold? And what does that really say about the state of modern football? I think the best way of going about this is really to, to go straight back to the beginning. So I've always considered the, the football manager as a brand. And effectively, how effectively you turn yourself into a brand is how effective you can be at club level and international level. But what I'd say is, is that the modern managerial brand has really fundamentally altered. The underpinnings that make up the brand have changed. So if you look at someone, let's say, Brian Clough. Now... Clough's managerial brand was very much individualistic and it really needed certain parameters to succeed. In other words, he needed to be at a a club north of the Watford Gap that is in the second division and has a long period of being in the doldrums, at which point he would essentially arrive with Peter Taylor and they would together... You know, transform the club, get them promoted into the first division, lead them to the first division title, and then to success in Europe. And that when you changed that, when you took away, let's say, when he moved to Leeds, and the problem there is that Leeds were already a you know, one of the major dominant clubs in English football at that time, and the squad was pre-existing and was already successful. So immediately his methods grated against them and it just goes horribly wrong. And he's sacked within you know, a couple of months. 
when he goes to Brighton, it's a Southern club. And again, his mojo doesn't quite work there. It's only really when he goes to Nottingham Forest, Pete Taylor comes back in, boom, Shanker. It then starts working, and he leads them to even greater success than he'd had at Derby. And that really his managerial sort of career ebbs and then sort of you know, goes into a terminal decline once the idea of the individual manager as a brand and as a you know single-handed force for pushing clubs up into the upper echelons of English football, once that declines, so does he. Once football clubs start having you know, 30, 40, 50 employees, once you get more, you know, focus on youth development and scouting and international scouting, immediately Brian Clough's style of management becomes idiosyncratic and becomes outdated. And eventually, you know, relatively young in terms of age, in terms of managerial age, he's retired and he's descended into alcoholism in the last couple, two or three years of his spell at Nottingham Forest. And he leads them in his last season to relegation at the Premier League. In other words, Brian Clough's style of management and brand doesn't work in the Premier League. Okay, let's take a more contemporary sort of look at it. Let's say you take Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson now. Think of him as really M&S in the 80s and early 90s. The sort of the preeminent high street brand in terms of food, clothes and homeware. And really that dominance was down to, I suppose, a reputation for excellence, uh, a history that people, that shoppers on the high street could believe in, and as a result, a long-term position of strength. But that type of brand wasn't all-encompassing. It wasn't as if you had no choice, you had to go to M&S. There was plenty of competition on the high street. So you had places like Woolworths, CNA, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, yeah, House of Fraser, any number of different rivals. And, and while M&S was considered sort of preeminent, that was due to they were considered excellent as their underpinnings. Well, if you now take, let's say, a modern great manager, let's say you take Guardiola. As a brand, he's an Amazon or a Facebook or a Google. It's an all-encompassing dominance. You know, it denudes or it destroys the competition. You know, the death of the high street has yeah you know, a lot of arguments could be said that you know internet businesses like Amazon you know have really undercut it and made it rather than I suppose the domestic world of you know Alex Ferguson's M and S where basically you know the main competitors were other British stores is that you've now got a situation where it's international. In other words, you're not just competing with the shop across the street, you're competing with the global entity that is Amazon. And really only four or five other businesses across the world are in any position to compete. Which is really what's happening, happening at the upper end of you know, European football at the moment. Is that you've only got these mega clubs you know, with their territories. So in other words, Bayern Munich territory is obviously Germany. Juventus's territory is Italy, PSG's territory is France, and obviously, you know, Barcelona and Real cut you know, Spain in half as, as such. 
So what that leaves us with Zidane is, well, where does Zidane fit in? We know that sort of Guardiola has this philosophy and style of management and a process that is quite straightforward and simple. You need to have a world-class youth system. You need to have a world-class stadium. You need to have owners with deep pockets and your club already has to be quite successful. And so that's the case with Bayern Munich. That was the case with Man City. And when he first took the job Barcelona, all those prerequisites were, made, were met. And we now know what Guardiola does. He goes there, he uses the existing players, buys, brings in new players, schools them in his process, and they go out there and they play fantastic football. And at least domestically, they are preeminent and dominant. But Zidane doesn't fit into that, in the sense that... As we said, he, he wasn't really a particularly fantastic tactical manager. He wasn't a sort of inspirational, you know, ideological manager in, let's say, the way that you'd say a Marco Baez, Marcelo Baezla. So where is his success come from and what does it tell us about European football now and in the future? Let, let's really go from, I suppose, the beginning of why... This, his managerial sets has left us cold as a sort of footballing public is that compare them to the previous dynasties so really you've got the sort of 70s Ajax team and the 70s Bayern Munich team and for 6 out of the 10 years of the 70s they were the teams that won the European Cup and both of them three-peated and they were era-defining teams not just at club level so in other words, for three years, Ajax were the dominant European club. And the next three years, it was Bayern. They were also the backbones of two fantastic, brilliant international teams. So the West German team and the Dutch team, who meet in the 74 World Cup final. The 78 World Cup final is the Dutch playing the Argentines. And... So as a result, those teams tactically changed football. They had the dominant footballers in, you know, intellectually and physically out on the field in terms of Cruyff and Beckenbauer, and both of them became huge figures in European football. You know, not just in their playing careers, past their playing careers, and then what you have on the flip side of the other great teams, you've either got. A dynastic manager. So you've got Ferguson who won two with United. You have Clough who won two with Forrest. You have Mourinho that kind of had his one two with two of the lesser teams. So in other words you have the, the surprise win for Porto. So in other words a Portuguese team winning the Champions League. And you have Inter Milan, who you know hadn't had much success domestically in Italy, let alone success in Europe, and leading them to not just the Champions League, but to a treble. Or you had a dynastic team like Liverpool and the Boot Room, which then allowed them to win three European Cups. And even if you look into the more present day, you had Barcelona and the Tiki Taka, and the underpinnings of that with Xavi, Iniesta and Messi. And that, you know, played a, a role in the Spanish domination at international level with you know, one World Cup win and two wins in the Euros. 
and you know Messi's role as part of you know MSM with Suarez and Neymar and Luis Enrique, who I suppose in some ways retrofitted some of the tiki taka football from Guardiola under Luis Enrique. None of that really seems to apply to the Real Madrid dynasty. It seems to be more player led, which is kind of rare, you know. For you know, as, as important as. Cruyff and Beckenbauer was there was great managers behind them as well and while you know Cristiano Ronaldo is a, a brilliant football player he's not an ideologist he's not someone that you know plays in the way of you know a total football you know, for the Dutch or the sort of samba football that some of the sort of doomed Brazilian teams of the late seventies and eighties played in, really he's a statistical juggernaut. He is simply, I will score you fifty goals a season every season. I will get you you know anywhere between sort of ten to seventeen goals in the Champions League, win at all costs. You know, I will be the centre point of the team, and everyone will I suppose work off of me. But that's not in the same way of Tiki Taka, that's not in the same way of, you know, let's say Cantonacchio when you're talking about Helenio Herrera's Inter Milan team of the late mid to late sixties. You know, there's not in that team an underpinning from one country. So you know, Tony Cruz is German, Luka Modric is Croatian, Ronaldo is Portuguese. Marcelo's Brazilian, Sergio Ramos is Spanish. They're all they're great players, but they're not necessarily dominant at domestic level. You know, they've really under Zidane they win one league title. In other words, if you look at the two and a half years that he's there, he kind of inherits the mess of Rafa Benitez. I think there's there's something I find very I suppose fascinating about sort of the Real Madrid sort of manager merry go round. Is that is that you could draw these sort of fantastical Venn diagrams, you know, for the different managerial roles that people play. So, in other words, often they'll get in a a an authoritarian sort of defensive style of manager. Let's say a you know sort of Fabio Capello, uh, and uh, to an extent a Rafa Benitez, and they're sort of. And in Mourinho, let's say you put them into sort of a category, and their job is basically to turn the messy, over-attacking, over-indulgent team into a defensive unit that will then can then get success. And often what happens is is that they have some short-term success, but inevitably their sort of authoritarianism wears people down. And it annoys people. And then eventually they'll sack that manager. But then they'll go to the other side of the Venn diagram. And it will be an attacking holdover. It's like a, of Wande Ramos. Someone whose job is basically to you know, stay in the background. Keep you know, the, the ship on an, keep the ship on an even keel. And let the attacking players flow. And then you've... You know, and this really the best, I think, example of that would be a would be sort of Vincente Del Bosque, who was, you know, whose skill was really managing the great players, but also the sort of 
youth team players that really underpinned it. The idea was is that you'd have your Galacticos, but then you'd have your you know youth team players who would basically do the donkey work, and how he managed to sort of mould that into a you know, collective outfit that wasn't riven by egos and was able to play a you know brilliant brand of football. And so really, in some ways, you know, the sort of success of Zinedine Zidane was is that he came in in the perfect moment. In other words, Rafa Benitez had come in there, and I think his viewpoint was is that he was that he was one of the top managers. So in other words, the the ilk of Mourinho, Capello, that kind of level of managerial authority, whereby. I think really in many different ways he was more of a Wande Ramos style holdover manager or a Pellegrini. And as a result, his style completely lost the dressing room very quickly. And so as a result, the personality type they needed on the Venn diagram really was a Zinedine Zidane style type manager. Someone who was very laissez-faire, whose job was really to keep the sh- again to keep the ship ticking over, get them to play a slightly more expansive brand of football, and to really soothe all the egos of the players involved and get them into a position where the players can do well. The point is, is that, that it sort of begs the question of whether laissez-faire as a style can ever really be genius. In other words, let's compare probably the, the nearest example I can think of to that kind of style of managerial success in the short term. In other words, coming in you know, mid-season and turn a, turning a team that's you know, done badly enough to get their manager sacked to winning the Champions League. And that's Roberto Di Matteo at Chelsea. So in other words, he was Andre Villas-Boas' assistant. AVB gets sacked after a 3-1 defeat in the Champions League to Napoli. And his job is to effectively salvage what you can from the season, ideally get us you know, back into the Champions League. Via a top four finish. I suppose the expectation is, really, what was the chances of turning around a 3-1 defeat within, essentially, a week, 10 days, at home to Napoli? And he goes above and beyond that. Not only does he, you know, win that tie, they go and win the Champions League. They win the FA Cup. And it's just an amazing success. But in some ways, his style of management is similar to Zidane's. There's an you know a element of calmness and married with the impeccable style. But if you look at Di Matteo's managerial career, he, he works his way from the bottom up. So one of his first major job is League One with MK Dons. Now the challenges are really twofold when you're talking about MK Dons. Is that they're an unpopular team in the football league. You know the franchise moving from Wimbledon, trying to effectively co-opt Wimbledon's history and Wimbledon's football league position in Milton Keynes. But also there's the issue of a extremely ambitious owners. And the size of the stadium. You're talking, you know, a stadium that could hold up to 30,000 people. And at the time, I believe it was about holding about 20,000. And this is in League One. And they want instantaneous success. And he leads them to the playoffs. They lose in the semi-finals. But considering that this was his first job, and it's not as if Roberto Di Matteo had a huge you know, history or knowledge of League One before coming in. He then uses that success to get the West Brom job. 
Now, this is a newly relegated West Brom. So, looking at them from the standpoint of the championship, they're somewhat unpopular. You know, you have the sort of Gary Megson football that they played. You know, sometimes it was pretty, sometimes it could be quite ugly. And a lot of the times they were holding on. But And that was in the Premier League. But in the championship, they're considered one of the bigger clubs, historically and in terms of resources and the club's relative size in comparison with the rest of the championship. And so you've got the pressure from the fans and the board to get back into the Premier League as quickly as possible. And the sense that teams are going to go to the Hawthorns wanting to put one over the old Premier League team. And he takes them up first go. And has some success at the beginning of the season, but eventually, you know, they have a downturn in form. And really the board are more interested in keeping... West Brom in the Premier League, then they are in keeping their hotshot manager, so they get rid of him, and West Brom eventually survive. I suppose the point, the argument that you could make is that his Roberto Di Matteo's success at Chelsea is really based on his experience at demanding ambitious clubs with playing staff that have been chastened and quick turnaround. So in other words, his ability as Chelsea manager is to ascertain that the squad is ageing in terms of Ashley Cole, John Terry, Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba. This is a team that knows that it's only really got one or two shots left at getting to the Champions League final and winning. And that's what spurs them on. And they have a fantastic result against Napoli and it really just snowballs from there. It's not the best football that's ever been played. It's very, not quite defensive, but it's very much the last full measure of devotion. And that, you know, um, getting the draw at the new Camp with John Terry being sent off, being put under huge amounts of pressure and getting these sort of two sucker punch goals. And then going into Bayern Munich Stadium to play Bayern Munich in a Champions League final and getting that win. I think it's interesting here to look at you know, his post-Chelsea career. In other words, he lasts a few more months and Abramovich was never really going to keep him on in the long term. He doesn't fit the Abramovich mould of what he considers a great manager. In other words, Roman Abramovich's attitude towards Manchester, I've done that in a previous podcast, but having the holdover do brilliantly well was more than he could have ever dreamed of, but he doesn't want to win the Champions League with a holdover manager defending the flag. He wants Chelsea to win the Champions League in glorious attacking fashion, and the assumption was is that Roberto Di Matteo was never going to be able to turn that around, or do it quick enough, or they had the belief that he was going to do that. So they get rid of him. It's his next two jobs that I think are interesting. He goes to Schalke, who are a big German side who'd not quite fallen on hard times, but had periods of fallowness in comparison because you had their big rivals, Borussia Dortmund, were doing successful, and obviously the you know, overarching dominance of Bayern Munich. And he goes there, and the critique at Schalke was is that you know behind the suit and the beautiful tailored suit and the implacability. That there wasn't much depth, and eventually, you know, this sort of calm visage really winds up the fans, and you know he gets sacked, 
and he goes to Villa, and Villa have been relegated. They're in a very challenging position, you know, financially, and there's a, you know, they've been holding on for about two or three years, and finally they've gone through the trapdoor, and the squad was in, you know, rough state. You know, confidence-wise, they'd lost some of their better players, and it was a challenging environment, and he doesn't. He's not able to do what he'd done previously at MK Dons and at West Brom, and to an extent at Chelsea. He wasn't able to turn it round that quickly, and so he's you know pushed out the door. My point is, is that I think Roberto Di Matteo is a pretty solid manager, and when he has got it right at MK Dons, West Brom, and Chelsea. He's delivered fantastic success. But in the long term, that style of turning a club round on a sixpence isn't something that you can do every single time. And not every single place. You know, For example, Schalke is a, a lot bigger club than West Brom or MK Dons. And Villa were a lot bigger than West Brom and MK Dons. And, the, and both of those clubs were in effect... What we're never going to be in a position that you could turn it around that quickly. In other words, it's taken Steve Bruce at least a good couple of years at Villa to get them anywhere close to the playoffs. And it took a lot of money from the owners to do so. In other words, in Schalke, they've had to get rid of quite a lot of players. They've had to really rebuild the squad. And so his style of management was always going to be difficult at that kind of higher level. So in other words, Bundesliga and the upper, upper ends of the championship. But I, I have a tremendous amount of respect because really he's failed with challenges. He's not taken easy jobs. He's not you know picked a League One side with a huge stadium and lots of potential that he can get, you know, get back-to-back promotions with. Or he's not gone to a lower French team and you know had a couple of years to turn it around. He's really you know aimed for big clubs and it hasn't quite worked out. Now, if you I suppose compare that to Zinedine Zidane's managerial career, or, or really his career at Real Madrid post playing, it's a lot more kind of murky. It's a bit more difficult really to I suppose craft a narrative. Is that he sort of goes there? Up, he's kind of given a an advisory role, and sort of then it's quite nebulous. And at some point, he he's given the sort of role of like a general manager, a sporting director. But it's not a hundred percent clear, you know, quite how involved he was in the day to day running. What sort of signings were his? What sort of signings they weren't? He he's in some ways he's more of a figurehead. Which means that I, I can't really sit there and with any degree of accuracy go over who which players he signed and how he's impacted the manager as I would a normal kind of standard general manager or director of football. And really it's he then kind of gets more pushed, you know, during the Mourinho years to be a figurehead more on the coaching staff. But again, the role is fairly open ended, it's not a hundred percent shit you know, sure exactly what he's doing. He hasn't got the coaching qualifications. And eventually it's a it sort of reminds me a little bit of when David Beckham had a sort of weird kind of advisory, general managery sort of role for England under Fabio Capello. 
And in the end, it almost felt as if they just wanted to stick David Beckham in a suit on the sidelines because they felt that that would have some benefit somehow. I can think the same thing sort of happened with Real Madrid, is that they wanted him around, but there was never a specific role. And eventually, when you know, Ancelotti takes over, they give him the assistant manager's role. Now the point is, is that Ancelotti by this point is a fabulously successful you know, manager, very experienced. Could he have won the Champions League for Real Madrid without Zinedine Zidane being assistant? Yeah, probably. I'm not going to lie about that. And then eventually... He sort of decides to, I suppose, really commit to becoming a manager. Which then means that they kind of shift. So rather than him being around the first team squad, they say, go down to our B team in Castilla and manage them. Problem is, when he first rocks up there, is that he doesn't have the qualifications. He still doesn't. And he needs basically special dispensation. He needs to get the paperwork done as quickly as humanly possible so that he can actually legally by the rules manage the club so for a bit he's kind of a coach unofficial coach with a, there being an official manager but really he's the one calling the shots and it's the very famous uh, office story it's that um goes to one of his first away games and uh, goes and it's a tiny little stadium in i think the sort of spanish regional leagues and he sort of asks well is there a, an office i can use and they go, oh, yeah, sure, okay, well, we can get that sorted out for you. Because, you know, obviously it's Zinedine Zidane walking around this, you know. It would be, I suppose, equivalent to, let's say, a conference ground. Or maybe a really poor League 2 stadium. Like, you know, a ramshackle one that hasn't you know, seen a lick of paint for 10, 15 years. And so what happens is they basically clear out, like, a, a broom closet and stick in a mini desk and a chair. And say, well, here it is. And... He sort of takes one look at it and goes, oh, actually, it's fine, I don't need the office. And he has a limited amount of success. I mean, they play some nice football. They're kind of a mixture of youth team players and jobbing pros. And you know, they're kind of, I think the first season they finished something like 15th or 16th. And then the second year, I think they were doing a bit better near the playoffs. But it, it was difficult. I mean, there was a huge amount of media attention around it, but... It wasn't as, you probably, if you had to compare it with, let's say, Pep Guardiola's role as Barcelona B manager, it wasn't as obvious to you know, observers that Zidane was going to be this fantastic manager. <laughs> or that he had you know, really learnt a huge amount from it, other than just the basic day-to-day -day of how to manage a football club. So it wasn't as if he'd made a overwhelming case to become Real Madrid manager when they sack Rafa the Gaffer. But they do anyway. I think one of the interesting things that I, I remember reading about sort of Zidane and Real Madrid was really was the the non-signing of um, Kepa Ariza Balaga, who's now the world record transfer for a goalkeeper who's now at Chelsea. Now, at the time he was playing for Athletic Bilbao, he was quite a young keeper, he'd done pretty well, but he'd never played European football, he'd only had about, sort of, I think, 30, 35 appearances, but he was considered one of the next great Spanish goalkeepers. 
And so Real Madrid decide that they want to get him. It's in January, it's going to cost about £17 million. And they're all, everything's basically signed off. And Zidane says no. Now the point is, is that there's there was just an unspoken knowledge that you know that while they were happy with Kalor Namas in the short term, eventually they're going to need to get a goalkeeper, and they wanted someone either they wanted someone preferably Spanish and preferably young. If not, if that wasn't possible, then they'd go for one of the more famous goalkeepers. You know, like let's say a Courtois or possibly their ideal signing, which would have been De Gea, which. Could have happened a few years earlier, but broke down for... Yeah. It seems that from the information I've read that they pulled out at the last second and that everything was signed off and then they sort of blamed the fax machine. But that's, that's by the by. And Zidane turns it down. And the reason he says it is that he's worried about that it would damage the... Uh, damage the harmony in the team. Now, the point is, is that if I was in his position, you'd say to the kid, look, I'm going to give you a few league games, a few cup games, we're not going to win the league this year. Or you can say, well, leave him on loan at Bilbao for the rest of the year, come the summer, we'll look at things then and go from there. And I think this is one of the only times that I've really seen anything really close to a sort of a managing philosophy, is that you could see in his mind is that signing this young goalkeeper might put some of the squad's noses out of joint, especially Navas, and that it's almost as if he's ascertained that the sort of delicate balance of the team is that this is a little bit like that Chelsea team, is that it's possibly their last go-round in terms of you know, Ramos is getting older, Ronaldo is getting older, and... It's the awareness that eventually this team is going to have to be rebuilt from the bottom up. And that by signing this guy in January while they're still you know, battling in the Champions League might send out a you know, bad flare. And that might put things out of whack. But this is one of the things that I find about his managerial thing is that, not one, you know, is that he seems to have an awareness that he's got this really great team... But he doesn't seem to particularly want to manage it. In other words, when things are going brilliantly well, like the season before where they won the league and the Champions League, is that his managerial style looks fantastic. Purely because they're winning every single week, he seems very calm, very controlled, and everything is just, you know, he's sweeping everything before him. Yeah. In the next season, in the league, where things just go horribly wrong, you know, the first half of the season, Ronaldo's not scoring goals, neither is Benzema, they're looking aged, they've got turned over a couple of times at home, is that he, that his, the implacability that made him look so cool, calm and in control the season before, it's exactly the same, but it doesn't have the same impact. In other words, it seems to me that it doesn't... It, I think from what I remember his sort of post-match comments, it'd almost be something like, I really want us to win. I'm 100%, you know, I'm absolutely desperate to win. And hopefully we will turn it round. It was... I think the best way of putting it is that if you put his words into another manager's mouth, that manager would have been hammered by the press. The person would have been, I think, sacked and really... What that really means is is that 
it asked the key question, really, could any manager have done it like Zidane and succeeded? So there's two sides to that coin. Either it makes him heads, which is he's an exceptional manager and a one-off, who by sheer sheer aura has been able to turn this aged team around and get them to win three Champions League. Or the tails, which is that it's not what he says, it's who he it's by being him saying it. You know, it's not what you do or say, it's who you are. And that simply by him saying it seemed to turn it around in a way that league average manager says it, the rest of the Real Madrid team would have, I suppose, what, tuned out or wouldn't have listened or the press wouldn't have, any number of different sort of factors among that. I would conclude, I think, that he does have some managerial skill, but it is entirely wrapped up in he the aura and the brand that he has created. And what that brand requires is essentially a world-class five-star 11 at a five-star world-class club. At which point, if you were to do what he tried to do at Leicester or Stoke or Valencia, I don't think it would have the same impact. In other words, the it only works if I think the best way I've, I've I think I can explain it to you would be to use a, an extended cricketing me- metaphor. If you think of Real Madrid as being the England cricket team in the late nineties, imagine that. Jose Mourinho, when he turned up at Real Madrid, was Nasser saying after England have lost to New Zealand at home and are bottom of the test rankings. And what Nasser Hussain does is he immediately makes it more professional. They, you know, central contracts come in, there's more professionalism in terms of working out, in terms of fielding, in terms of the mentality. They become a harder-nosed operation. They start building towards a better future and they start getting better results. But eventually, you know, Hussein's very intense, very sort of regimented style. Eventually, the team starts to go from being a ragtag bunch of misfits into a much more talented, much more promising team. And really, Nasser Hussain sort of sees the writing on the wall and quits the captaincy and then retires from cricket which then leads to sort of Ancelotti think of Ancelotti like Michael Vaughan who's far more sort of a positive a bit younger sort of from a different generation and they the team starts playing with a bit more fluidity and a bit more style and panache it's also let's factor in that we're, when you're talking about Michael Vaughan is that he also had a much better squad to work with than any of the sort of mid to early NASA Hussein teams. And so Michael Vaughan then leads you to the 2005 Ashes Triumph, which is really his pinnacle as a captain, as a batsman, that's probably a couple of years earlier. And then eventually, you know, he sort of falls by the wayside physically and he leaves and he retires. Which then kind of let, brings in Zidane. And I'm not going to compare him as Strauss, I'm going to compare him as Alistair Cook. I think Zidane and Alistair Cook have a similar kind of style in the sense that, you know, Cook was very much a paint-by-numbers captain. It, you know, his instincts were fairly 
conservative. And really the middle order was set. You know, you had Cook, Bell, Peterson, you had Broad and Anderson, and you had Swan. And so as a result, you know, he uses his you know quicks and his swing bowlers with the when the new ball, the middle order pile on a load of runs, and you know relatively speaking, Alistair Cook has had some success. He's won Ashes. He's won in India as captain. But when he doesn't have those kind of talents available to him, and when the circumstances require a bit of nous and a bit of proactivity. That's not really him. He's just a decent chap and doing the best he can. So in the end, I'd say Zinedine Zidane is basically Alistair Cook, but with Andrew Strauss's record. It, you know, in effect, what Zidane cannot do is turn goat piss into gasoline. And I think it's noticeable that in no way, shape or form can you really say with any degree of... I suppose, confidence that he has evolved as a manager. It, I can understand a manager in his first six months at a major club not wanting to make any signings. And I suppose after the year they had when they'd won the double, when they'd won the league and the Champions League, yeah, wanting to you know stay loyal. But it was clear that that team was in, was getting older together. And that it needed fresh impetus, and it needed fresh blood to maintain that. In the sense that Barcelona were always going to try and get better. The teams around Europe were going to try and improve. And he doesn't seem to want to engage in that. And that's part of the reason why, in the end, it looks to me as if he actually quits. Is that he's basically both unwilling and unable to make that step. To break up his, that team that's won three in a row. And if you compare and contrast it with Ferguson and Pep Guardiola, it's instructive. In other words, Ferguson had no bother. If it if he wanted, you know, he wanted Man United to be the most successful team in the world, and if that meant having to get rid of the first great Man United team that he had was the architect of, that wasn't a problem. Man United always came first. The player was always going to be secondary to that. The second you weren't performing for United. You'd either become a role player on the bench or in the squad, or you'd be sold. No questions asked. And he doesn't have that willingness. Or he didn't have that willingness to make the signings. Or to engage with uh, Florentino Perez in terms of the signings he wanted. He didn't want to play the sort of upper-level politics that you have to at a big club. In other words, you're not going to be successful at Real Madrid with the same squad for four or five years. You can have that, but that is an anomaly. That is not a underpinning. In other words, the hard work of getting Real Madrid to where they were in a position of winning three Champions League in a row was done mainly by Ancelotti and Mourinho. They'd done the hard work. He you know, drilled the outfit and made them more defensively sound. Ancelotti was able to turn that into a that sort of sound basis into a much more open and attacking and successful team in Europe. Essentially, Zidane just got all of the benefits from that without really ever engaging in a huge amount of work to maintain. All he does is just maintain it. In effect, he is a caretaker. Which brings me on to my next point in this podcast. And, and in it, I'm going to compare Zinedine Zidane to 
Spirit Cantona. And it's important to do so in the sense that this is really getting into the heart of the Zinedine Zidane brand. Is that he's always had this tremendous level of success. In other words, when he joins Juventus, when he joins Real Madrid and with the French national team. And as a result, it created an, a sort of an aura around him. In other words, he was the prime Galactico when he signed by Real Madrid in the, I think, 2001. Is that at this point, he's won the World Cup and he scored two goals in the final against Brazil and was a national hero. And he's, you know, and probably his, in terms of international tournaments, the best tournament he actually had was Euro 2000 and he's led France to that success. And he's been a huge part of you know, a really great Juventus team. And then he goes to Madrid and wins the Champions League there, scores this wonder goal against Bayer Leverkusen in the final. And he has this, this reputation as being one of the greatest footballers ever. I think he was a great football player. But I didn't put him in my greatest footballers podcast. And... I suppose the reason I didn't was that if you look at Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo is that they are generational talents. They have changed the way how football is played. And I think Maradona to an extent, you know, summed up an era. And and Pele, you know, was the the symbol of the sort of great Brazilian teams of sort of from fifty eight to seventy. So that's a bit harder. Is that he doesn't change football in any tactical sense. He's just a brilliant playmaker. But formations weren't invented to maximize him. Really, you know. At, Juventus, he kind of plays as a sort of 10 slash second striker. At Madrid, because he's getting older, he plays a little bit more sort of a sort of float, floating centre mid kind of role. And for France, he's surrounded with so much, so much talent, is that he's again, he's kind of given a floating number 10 role, let's say. But I, I think in some way his legacy is one of really, an, I suppose, an accident of birth. If, let's say if you compare him to Cantona, Cantona is born in 1966, Sedan is born in 1972. Is that football of the late 80s, there's, it's a coded time. In other words, you still have football hooliganism, you still have poor stadiums. You have the worst remnants of you know 80s football really coalesces in Italian 90, where there's not many goals, there's lots of fouls. And it's really from then that modern football is slowly but surely evolves from that kind of turning point. So in other words, they rule out the back pass, the tackle from behind. You get socking all suits of stadiums, the creation of the Champions League. All these other bits and pieces and more commercialism and more television really spring from that. And specifically with French football, it's a down period. 
In other words, he's too young for the 84 European Championships, too young for the 86 World Cup, but he's just old enough to be floating around when they fail to qualify for 90, the Italian 90, which is a huge shock. And he gets his first ban from the French national team for calling the manager a shit. And it's this sort of in his early 20s where he goes through quite a few different you know, French teams. You know, he gets involved in fights. He has issues with the fans. He has success at Marseille. And eventually just uh, drums his way out of French football. At which point the national team manager is Michel Platini. And Platini sees in Eric Cantona this gifted player. He wants to build his team around Eric Cantona. And he helps him to move to England. Effectively to give him a fresh start away from the French press, away from the French football fans and just French football in general. And it's here that, you know, Eric Cantona really ascends to the next level. But what you have to remember, and I've done this in previous podcasts when talking about English football in the 90s, it's a backwater. They're banned from Europe it's not considered a higher level. You know, it's not considered high level. You know, obviously you've got Italy is the main you know, epicenter of world and European football in, at that time. And really, for the period of time when Eric Cantona is at his peak, English football is still inching its way back into Europe, and and it takes a lot of years before English teams are finally competitive in Europe. And so immediately he has success at Leeds. He helps them win the last football league, Division 1, before the advent of the Premier League. And he moves to United. By the time he retires from football and leaves Man United, he's won four leagues, two FA Cups, and he's one of the most important people in Manchester United history. Whenever you read anything about the sort of first great Ferguson team, he was the difference maker that turned a team that was there or thereabouts, that was finishing second, finishing third, that seemed to be missing that last ingredient of confidence and belief and talent that you need to make that final step to winning the league. And even and even though he retires before you know, Man United make that final step in Europe when they win the Champions League against Barcelona at the new Camp, is that he's already set that team well on the way to getting to that stage. He's not; He doesn't make it with them, but he's definitely a huge part of it. And by this point, and in the early 90s, you know, France qualified for Euro 92, but they, they don't make an impact. But if you look at his international record as a whole, he played 45 caps and 20 goals. He was a you know he was a, a great player at international level. I know the, there's a lot of talk about his sort of record in Europe for Manchester United not being as good as his league form. You also have to remember that Eric Cantona wasn't an out and out striker. He was a playmaker, second striker. And really, what happens is is that I suppose he, if you think of a tournament where Eric Cantona would have been probably dominant, you'd imagine Euro '96. So he would have been, you know, where he plays his domestic football, and the World Cup '94 would have probably been the sort of precursor towards that. 
and France getting knocked out of the World Cup 94 was an absolutely harrowing moment in French football. It literally is. They just need a draw at home to Bulgaria and it's the last seconds and they're Really, they just need to take the ball to the corner. Davide Ginola crosses it. They break away and score with literally one of the last kicks of the game. And they lose 2-1. They're knocked out of World Cup 94. But if you look at it, it's that in that period of time, they've not qualified for two World Cups. They've just about qualified for a European Championship. And they didn't make a huge impact. That era for France, there were some great players, but it wasn't a great team. And that's not a disparaging disparagement on Cantonal or some of the players they just weren't as good and it's especially made worse when you then compare from what happened from 96 on to 2006 whereby you know you you know Gerard Houllier leaves they get Aimé Jacquet in and and probably the most ironic element of this whole tale is that the thing that really kicks French football into the next generation happens in England at Selhurst Park with the Kung Fu kick. When Cantona has been sent off, he's been marched around the edge of the pitch to a cascade of abuse, decides three quarters of the way around, he's had enough, dives in, Kung Fu kicks a Crystal Palace fan that had been shouting abuse at him. At which point he loses the French captaincy and he gets a ban from playing football and a ban from international football. In that intervening time period, Zidane breaks into the French national team and Eric Cantona never returns. Now it's important to note that Zindine Zidane doesn't have a particularly effective Euro 96. Which, despite that, they still get to the semi-finals. Now, imagine a sort of counterfactual world in which Eric Cantona makes a return for the French national team, uh, takes the captain's armband, and with Zidane leads them to winning Euro 96 against the Germans in the final. At which point you've then got the World Cup 98. You can imagine a situation in which Eric Cantona retain, decides that he wants to end his career at the end of World Cup 98. He said, you know, Things to that effect. At which point he would have then, you know, depending... And imagine him just being a sort of striker and the you know, French team of 98 surrounding him. So Zidane, all the various other... You know, even as more of a figurehead than as a... You know, then maybe the fulcrum of the team. And they win. I think that would then change the way how both... Both Cantona and Zidane would have been perceived. I think it's important to note, if you look at Zidane's international stats, he makes 108 appearances, 31 goals. You know, they're slightly different players, but they both, for France, did the same role of playmaker. Cantona, at this point of his career, was more of a close to a striker than in a a pure attacking midfielder but if you know he gets 20 goals for a poor French team that doesn't qualify for World Cups and you know doesn't have much of an impact in European Championships Zidane plays for a French team that wins the European Championship wins the World Cup gets to another World Cup final 
And he only has 31 goals from 108 appearances. And, and of that 31, you know, a fair, fairly decent amount were penalties, free kicks. And if you look at his Zidane's overall career, is that when he arrives at Juventus, they're European champions. When he arrives at Real Madrid, they've been European champions the previous year. So, and after he leaves Juventus, within two years... Juventus have got through to the final of the Champions League. And they've won they win Lo Scudetto three out of the four years after Zidane has left. So no matter how good he was, no matter how brilliant of a footballer he was, you know, Juventus carried on. You know, without dropping too much of a beat, to be completely honest with you. And if you look at it, his domestic career, you know, he wins a couple of Scudettos. Gets to a couple of Champions League finals with Juventus and loses them. You know, and at Real Madrid, he wins La Liga and he wins the Champions League. Now, I think the thing with the Champions League, and it does link up in a sense a little bit to his managerial career, is that we all remember the the goal he scores at Hampden Park against Bayer Leverkusen. It's a brilliant goal. But if you actually look at the, the highlights of that match... Real Madrid were fairly lucky. I mean, they get a couple of goals and there was a couple of defensive errors from Leverkusen and you know, Leverkusen had their moments to equalise and take that game to extra time. It's a scrappy win. It's nothing to write home about. The Zidane goal gives it a shine that, you know, let's say, 20 years after the fact makes it look better than what it was at the, at the time. And Leverkusen, and this is again a, a figure that's going to really sort of come up in when I discuss you know the, him winning these Champions League as manager, is that they're they what do they call Leverkusen because they go they screw up winning the German league on the last day of the season they lose the German Cup final and they lose the Champions League final. In other words, from having a you know theoretical triple to going home without anything. You know, they're a smaller side, and eventually their better players get picked off, and they really slide back into obscurity. In comparison with the, you know, and when you remember they're playing the Galacticos, the great Real Madrid team. And I think if you look at the sort of last two or three years of Zidane's sort of Real Madrid career, they fall apart to an extent. I mean, his one, probably his most, I think, most famous utterance is when they sell Makaleli to Chelsea. And he understands that Makaleli is this vital component of the that Real Madrid team. Is that he allowed all the other players to go forward and he was keeping everything sort of tight at the back. And he was on a you know fairly meagre salary in comparison with all the other high earners. He didn't have the level of fame that the rest of the sort of front loaded players at Real Madrid had. And they'd sell him to Chelsea essentially just to make up some, you know, shortfall. He said you can't, you know, get rid of the the engine of a car and expect it to still work. That's his probably most famous utterance in the sense that it's actually nails the you know, he nails it. But Despite being one of the world's most famous players, it doesn't lead to anything happening. In other words, they still sign David Beckham because David Beckham will sell 
oodles more shirts than Claw McAlealy ever will. And that's where that team sort of starts to slowly decline in the Champions League. They do win one, you know, La Liga, but it's a sort of slapdash come from behind where they literally just turn on the last sort of two, three months of the season and you know, just get over the edge. It's not a you know, wire to wire glorious championship, put it win it put it in that way. <laughs> and so I think it's instructive to think of the French teams that he played with, the players. So you've got sort of key figures like Marcel Desailly, Laurent Blanc, Lisa Rizou, Lilian Turam, Claude McAlealy, you've had Trezeguet, Thierry Henry, Vieira. I mean, it, throughout his, you know, even at the sort of back end of his, back end of his French career, you, you have players coming through such as Frank Ribéry, is that Zidane was always surrounded by great players in all different positions. And I'm not using that as a, you know, stick to beat him with in that regard. But what it means is, is that from leaving Bordeaux in 1996 until he retires at the end of 2006, is that he played 10 years with... Three of the great teams, the great Juventus team, so that's you know, Edgar Davids, that's Alessandro Del Piero, it's David Trezeguet. When he goes to Real Madrid, you've got Raul, you've got Ike Casillas, any number of just brilliant attacking players. And so he comes along at just... I mean, this is what happens with a lot of genius, is that they always come along at exactly the right moment. So he... You know, whereby Cantona deals with the back end of the 80s and French decline in the early 90s, Zidane comes through at just the perfect moment so that his international career goes semi-finals of Euro 96, World Cup winners, Euro 2000 winners. Even when they get knocked out in South Korea and Japan, he has the advantage of being injured. He only plays the third game, at which point they're already pretty much screwed and he wasn't fully fit. In 2004, you know, he has one kind of really good game against England, and even that was a stupid foul from Emil Heskey, which gives him the free kick, which he buries, and David James taking him out from a terrible back pass, which he buries the penalty. They lose to Greece in, in the quarters, and he doesn't have much of an impact. You know, and in 2006, he's come out of retirement. He's helped France get through to the tournament proper. But he's done so with Lilian Turam and Claude McAlealy as well. He's not on his own. And in the group stages, you know, he gets sent off. And it's really only when you get through to the knockout stages that he starts producing a couple of you know, pretty good performances. Which then leads us to, I suppose, the final. I think one of the things that I've always noticed about the sort of headbutt incident was that for an extended period of time there was this just absolute fascination with what Marco Materazzi said to him to warrant him headbutting him in the World Cup final in his last ever game as a professional. There was suggestions it was racist, that it was something so, so terrible that it simply had to provide, produce, warrant that response. 
And yet, when it finally comes out, what he said and the, the story behind it, I've almost there was almost a sheepishness about the way how Marco Materazzi sort of tells the story, is that literally all he's done is really basically just you know, called his I think he just calls his sister a whore or something. It's something it's it's vile and it's horrible, but it's not. It can't have been something that you know, Zinedine Zidane hasn't heard a million times before. You know he's played years in Italy with Italian centre halves, doing you know. What Italian centre halves do? It's a rough and tumble game. There's fouls. There's niggles. There's you know words in your ear. It this can't have been his first barbecue in that regards. And yet, he, it's almost as if Marco Materazzi can't quite believe what happened. Is that he just says this kind of throwaway abusive comment, and suddenly Zidane just flips the switch and headbutts him. And yet, if we're going to go to sort of the the element of Trumpism, it's just that. He's never really articulated what's happened. He's never really talked about it in interviews. Almost in a way because actually what he did was just idiotic. It was just that he got the rag on, was irritated, and for whatever reason decided that he he was just going to lash out. And he had done that previously in his career. Uh, yeah, when he was at Real, when he was at Juve. He you know, had a bit of a temper about him. But the fact is that over the years... By not talking about it, it's almost been sort of explained away. A bit like a lot of some Trump supporters just explain. They always seem to have a kind of an explanation for you know what he said. What sort of tremendously shocking statement? And they always try to explain. Oh, that's just Donald being Donald. He you know likes to push things out there, push the button, and you know get a reaction out of people. And in a way, I think what's happened with Zidane is that. If you compare him to Cantona, is that Cantona is actually the the real it's the real deal in sense that he really does believe what he says. He stands for things. In other words, you know, when he gets to the end of his career, you know, football is starting to get more commercial, and it's not something that sits well with him. And at this point, he knows he's not going to ever play international football. He's not going to World Cup ninety eight in France, and at that point, he's, I think, emotionally moved on. So he realised this is the time to leave. And he gets into beach football. He does cinema. And really, beach football is the absolute opposite of, you know, the commercialisation of football that is going on in the 90s. And which Man United were really in the vanguard, in other words. Third away kits, changing your kit every single year, the Red Cafe, MUTV, all of those bits and pieces that were starting is that when you go on to beach football, you have fewer crowds. It's televised, but not in any huge, great commercial sense. You know, he's, you know, Eric Cantona is the anti the Glazers taking over at Manchester United. You know, he's, and one of the things that I love about him is he's, he's always talked about, yeah, I'd love to be Manchester United manager. But the way how he puts it is in a way that would mean he'd never be given the job. He'd be too much of... He's like, I've got this idea on how I would play football. And I'd imagine it being very pure. I imagine it not being... Comparable to Zinedine Zidane's very... Kind of laissez-faire. You know, just keep things ticking over. I think it would be far more fluid. I think it would. he'd be far more involved as a manager. And I don't think it would work. But I think as an actual... Intellectual and philosophical standpoint 
is at least he'd go down swinging. He would go believe he would believe in the football he wanted to play and the players he wanted to do. In other words, he's the type of manager that might well play the first game with eleven youth players, or he might just go all out attack. It's that kind of purity of thought that you can get with Eric Cantona that you don't necessarily get with Zidane. In other words, Trump's brand, Trump is his brand and his words and his Twitter account and how the message that he gets out and the huge amount of media attention that he gets on every single utterance. And Zidane is his brand and his silence. In other words, you don't necessarily know what Zinedine Zidane really stands for. He doesn't give huge amounts of interviews. And as a result, it's created a mystique about him. That, you know, oh, the headbutt, and, oh, he was, you know, this kind of, you know, m- moody, fre- you know, like classically, oh, moody French, beautifully gifted, you know, but slightly unknowable. And that's kind of filled the vacuum, when really, actually, what Zinedine Zidane stands for is, well, Real Madrid and Adidas. That is the, the things that he has basically been associated more than anything else. You know, he doesn't... He's never tried to play anywhere else other than the absolute top level of French national team, the great Juventus team, and the great Real Madrid team. Now, he didn't wind his career down playing in a lower league or a different country. It is all or nothing. I will be at the top level or nothing at all. Which is fine, but at the same time, his managerial career. You know, in other words, he goes down to Castilla, but it's not. It's not as if he fell in love with the place. I actually, I prefer youth coaching. It's a means to an end. You know, in other words, these kind of nebulous, kind of vague roles where he was sort of assistant, sort of sporting director, but at no point is his fingerprints on anything that you could sit there and really nail down. Oh, well, that signing was bad. It, none of that really exists. And in some ways, his use to Real Madrid was in some way just his his brand and his standpoint. In some ways, I've considered that... I think Zidane was the better player, obviously, but not that much better than Cantona. I see Zidane as being just basically a Hall of Fame Mesut Ozil. In other words, he is... All of the things that Mesut Ozil has and more. Zidane had leadership quality. He was a player that was the centre point of a team in a way that Ozil has flirted with but never done and the fact that Zidane could do it at such a high level and that he can make the players around him better. What I think that makes him is one of the sort of hundred best players to ever play football, but it's not at the same transformative level as a Maradona, as a Pele, as a Cristiano Ronaldo, as a Messi. I think Cantona has the better legacy in terms of what he stood for and how important he was to United. Before he turns up, Man United hadn't won anything for years. They hadn't won the league. They hadn't had a huge amount of success. After he leaves, they then go on and carry on that dominance of which he was someone a key founding stone in. And I think in a way, what we've done is we've bequeathed Cantona's authenticity onto Zidane. Because in some ways, Zidane... You know, looks better in a suit than Cantona. Cantona was always a bit on more on the sort of chunky side, especially the latter part of his career. You know, Cantona's period is in you know nineties English football, which is not, you know, it's 
it's not as beautiful as seeing Zidane playing in the Delhi Alpi or in the Bernabeu in the Champions League playing for Real Madrid and Juventus around all these famous people. In other words, you're dealing with Lee Sharp, Dennis Irwin, Andre Kanchelskis rather than Roberto Carlos, David Beckham, Casillas. Zidane has more obvious success. Ah, he's won Champions League, he's won Ballon d'Ors, he's won World Cups, he's won European Championships. And as a result, and because of his success at the French national team, is almost, in effect, almost unbroken in a way, is that it gives him a more palatable narrative. The fact that he had you know, Algerian ancestry. So in other words, he played a huge part in the 98, the, you know, black... Arab, white, French, you know, that kind of team that many people, you know, seem to be like almost a turning point in sort of French culture that all France could get together and support this multiracial, multi ethnic team that wins it for France as a whole and what France you know, strives to be a better France than the, the reality. Because a couple of years afterwards, you know, Le Pen nearly wins the presidential election. And as a result, I see Zidane as really a more sanitised, corporate shield version of Cantona. In other words, for all of this bad boy, oh, he headsbutts people, he never criticises managers. You know, he doesn't criticise about the, the role of big money in football in a way that Cantona has. I think in some ways, Zidane is, I suppose, intellectually incurious. In other words, he's quite happy to, you know, be part of the status quo, if not even an upholder of the status quo. Is that, you know, ah, I'm Zidane, I am this icon, Madrid are an iconic club, therefore, you know, that is how I want my managerial career. In other words, the only other places that he's really been linked to as a manager would be Juventus and France. And the point is that French nationally, let's say, you know, counterfactually, that they get knocked out in the quarterfinals. Most people would have assumed Didier Deschamps would have lost his job. And then you know, Zidane could have walked into this just unimaginable amount of talent. You know, they've got you know, young players, you know, players like you know, Griezmann and Pogba who are near enough into their prime. You have defenders, midfielders, attackers, pace, you know, experience at the top-level clubs in Europe. And really, he wouldn't have to do any major management other than just you know, really take his pick of whichever gifted young French players he has, you know, Mbappe, and then just, you know, go out there and they, they would have a great, they'd be favourites for the next European Championships, put it in that way. And even if he goes to Juventus, you know, Juventus have just won seven Scudettos in a row, the last three have been doubles, they've got to two Champions League finals, they are one of the biggest clubs in the world, and they are trying to get bigger. In other words, he's not necessarily going to rock up at a smaller club and try and build from the bottom up. That's not really what he does. In other words, with Pep, you at least get the maniacal obsession with detail and trying to create the most wonderful brand of football. With Zidane, you don't really get that level of interaction. In other words, you know, he let the, the already great Real Madrid team carry on. But even if you look at the finals and how they've won it, it's not the satisfying satisfaction that you've got watching the Tiki Taka Barcelona team under Guardiola or even the you know much more sort of streamlined much more attacking 
you know, more slightly more direct version of the Guardiola, yeah, sorry, the Luis Enrique MSN team. You, you don't even really get the joys of the early Galacticos, let's say the ones that beat, you know, Valencia 3-0 in the Stade de France before, they, before Zidane joined. These Champions Leagues are usually quite gritty, and they're down-to-earth in a way that you have to give them credit for winning it, but it's not it's not the feeling you'd get if you were watching the Ajax team of the 70s, the Bayern team of the 70s, or even the Liverpool team of the late 80s, sorry, late 70s, early 80s. I mean, let's look at it. I mean, one of the things that I, I noticed when I was doing the sort of research before I did this podcast was that the last, let's say, six Champions League finals have all got the same recurring figures in it. So you've got Real Madrid winning, you know, four of them. You've got Bayern winning one, and you've got Barca winning one. And it's amazing when you actually look at it on the page. So, effectively, you let's take the four Real Madrid wins. So, twice it's against Atletico Madrid and Diego Simeone. The other two are Juventus and Liverpool. So, let's all line up the cards. So... Juventus have lost two Champions League finals and one to the MSN you know, Barcelona team that won a treble and they lost, I think, 3-1. It wasn't a particularly close final. And then they in Cardiff, they played Real Madrid and they lost 4-1. Again, it was close for the first maybe 20, 30 minutes and then just Real Madrid pulled away and just smashed them and so as I've said this is a very dominant domestic Juventus team and both times they have been swatted aside by a five-star Madrid and a five-star Barcelona team okay so you take the last Champions League final which was you know was really overshadowed by the you know mistakes by Carrius the concussion the injury or you know the deliberate foul depending on how you look at it of Ramos on Liverpool's best player, Mohamed Salah. And eventually, you know, it was tight first half, but in the second half, you know, Real Madrid pulled on bail and really ran away with it. So let's, so that's a really kind of a three, four-star Liverpool being beaten by a five-star you know, Real Madrid team. And so, okay, you take the Bayern Munich Champions League final. Okay, who did they play? It was Borussia Dortmund managed by Jurgen Klopp. So it was really a, let's say, a four-and-a-half-star, you know, Bayern Munich team beating a four-star, you know, Borussia Dortmund team managed by Jurgen Klopp. At which point Jurgen Klopp had already had to sell a handful of, of his better players from Dortmund to Bayern Munich. And as a result, it really kind of led to the downfall of Jurgen Klopp. Essentially, the I think the emotions of constantly losing your best players to your biggest rivals, and by the, the one time that you really get to a final and have an opportunity to establish yourself and win a Champions League, you lose effectively in the last minute to Arjen Robben and Bayern Munich. So he leaves, goes to, goes to Liverpool, and then a similar thing sort of happens when they get to the Champions League final again. Okay, so the other two we were talking about is Atletico, Diego Simeone. And they are these sort of stylistically opposite of Real. Yeah, they're gritty, they're hard defending, 4-4-2, you 
I mean, there is some, you know, attacking verve to them, but it's only attacking verve once they've kept the back door locked, bolted, and, you know, defending the flag. And, you know, they're infrastructurally behind, and they're living in rail shadow, I think, you know, psychologically. <laughs> and, you know, in the first final, they're 1-0 up from a goalkeeping error, they try and defend the flag, give up a late equaliser, and then in extra time, but Real Madrid run away with it. Second final, again, another tight, scrappy game, goes to penalties, and Atletico fall apart and Real win. And so if you look at all of these teams and managers that I've talked about, they've all got the same kind of background. They're either domestically dominant, but at the same time, they're, the, they're just a level below the big teams. So Dortmund are below Bayern, and everybody else in European football is really a step behind Real and Barca. And that's especially true for Bayern Munich, who you know, Real Madrid have a hex over, and true of Juventus. And so you look at those teams. So what has Jurgen Klopp done since you know, Real beat Liverpool in the Champions League? He spent a huge amount of money on transfers. Since Juve've lost these two Champions League finals, what have they done? They've spent a huge amount of money first on Gonzalo Higuain, and now they've signed Cristiano Ronaldo, who is in his mid-30s for £100 million. Pounds. You know, as a desperate attempt to increase their, I think, footprint in terms of social media, in terms of marketing, and also as a despairing attempt that Ronaldo being the front man in the most... He's a short-term signing, but the attempt for them to win the Champions League. Okay, you look at Dortmund. Dortmund have had to really take a step back, and they're just signing younger players, you know, just as a way of developing them to sell them on. They're really, they're no longer a four-star team. They're really a three-star team. They're not particularly competitive in the Champions League, relatively competitive in the Europa League. So they're not able to compete with Bayern. They're not able to compete with Real, Atletico, Barca, and the English clubs. So what have Atletico done? Well, they've left their beloved you know, stadium. They've moved to a brand spanking new stadium out of town. They accepted foreign money from Chinese investors. And they've spent a huge amount of money on transfers. So in other words, all of these clubs are having to essentially try and catch up with the economic infrastructure and just the, the playing dominance you know, in terms of resource, in terms of you know having Ronaldo, Messi, and all the other constellation of stars that both Barcelona and Real Madrid have. And if you look at what you know, Pep Guardiola is doing at City, he's now trying to get City up to being a five-star squad. Because if you compare him, you know, unfortunately, you know what he found at Bayern was is that you could win the league with your eyes closed and one arm tied behind your back, and as a result, the teams at the absolute upper end of the Champions League, so not the semi-final level weren't competitive so really the only way that he can feel that he can get a five-star team is to go to man city who have the similar sort of resource probably a bit more resource than Bayern munich and as a result they're going to be more competitive because the league is more competitive and that's how he's trying to you know fight with barca and real to turn man city into that level of club you know five-star club because he's got the brilliant youth system fans money and his managerial excellence. So what I'm trying to say is, is that Guardiola and Zidane in their own ways have not only underpinned it, they've maintained the status quo. Their world is one of a, an entrenched footballing world of haves and have-nots. 
In other words, it's a de facto cartel. In other words, the only teams that are really able to get to the upper end of European football are PSG. Man City, Real, Barca, United, Liverpool, Juventus, Chelsea. And even if you think of Chelsea, they're borderline at this stage. Okay, maybe if I could have said Tottenham. But if you look at the Real Madrid dynasty, well, who are two of their mainstays for four of these Champions League? Gareth Bale and Luka Modric. Where did they come from? Oh, they were big money signings from Spurs. You know, who have, who have you know, Real Madrid have a brand new goalkeeper? Who did they get that goalkeeper from? It was Chelsea. It was Thibaut Courtois. <laughs> okay, well, where do, where's, you know, does the money come from for some of these, you know, cartel teams? Oh, well, PSG are, are funded by, you know, the Qatar State. Man City are, are Abu Dhabi. And these are people who are, you know, ownership groups that are doing so for soft power reasons. That's why they're spending huge amounts of money in a way that, you know, let's face it, Liverpool, Chelsea, United, they don't have, you know, they're not running their football clubs as a way of, you know, gaining political power. They are just running it as businesses. So as a result, Man United, Liverpool and Chelsea aren't buying clubs and starting, you know, mini Chelsea's in America or Australia because those they cost a huge amount of money and also they don't have a positive impact on the first team. None of the players from, you know, New York FC or Melbourne City have got anywhere near the Man City squad. They have been signed by Man City but they get loaned out and sold on for, you know, spare change. They're not you know, Tottenham you know, are building a brand new stadium. They're not in a position to you know, fund a brand new team halfway across the world. They don't have that kind of money. You know, it's a vanity project. <laughs> to go back to what I'm saying about Zidane and Trump is that Trump is you know, a dangerous demagogue, but essentially all he does is just send out Twitter messages. Very destructive. It's the people behind. It's his backers, the you know the billionaires who basically want the U.S. government you know cut down to you know the most basic levels of just defense and you know the bare minimum spent on education and infrastructure. They're the people that are dangerous because they're the ones who are who are shielded by Donald Trump's you know public ransom raves. Much in the same way that I don't personally think that Zinedine Zidane is trying to bring, you know, is trying to have much of a negative impact on European football. But by creating a world in which these five-star clubs, you know, and this cartel are dominance, is that the fame of Pep Guardiola and Zinedine Zidane you are camouflage. It's for the stratification of the football 1%. And that is where the door opens, you know, to, you know, breakaways, Euro leagues, no relegations, international games all over the world. And really, you know, that's incredibly dangerous because, and on a more emotional level, what you get is a Champions League that lacks all of the, I suppose, emotion of the European Cup. In other words, there are very few shocks anymore. It's the same teams playing against each other in the same rounds of the Champions League. It creates a situation where there is a glass ceiling and that effectively, you know, the club's chasing. You might only have two or three years to get to 
the quarters or the semi-finals of the Champions League before you're brought out. It tells players that really all the only way that you're going to get into this, the high levels of European football is if you have to you know, join one of the, the big clubs. So you're not going to do it with Tottenham. You're not necessarily going to do it with Chelsea. You basically use those clubs to get close enough that you can then join a Real or a Barcelona. And it has implications for the future of management. It means really, if you have a situation where basically, you know, Zidane is able to get the Real Madrid job because of his fame and is able to succeed without really being anything more than a league average manager with a world-class, world-famous name, where does that lead to? For example, let, let's put it this way. Zinedine Zidane's managerial career can be argued as being that his personal brand is what led to the success. In other words, the reason he got the, you know, such an important role in Real Madrid is because of his fame as a player. <laughs> and because he was, you know, he'd been given this fantastic job and fantastic opportunity is that you'd have to say that the brand is what led to the success. It wasn't his success as a manager, it was that he was the right brand in the right position. Not if you, let's say, look at Mourinho and say, you know, that his Mourinho's managerial success is what led him to become a brand. It's the brand before the talent. And it opens up the possibility that you, we may never get another another Arenas Michaels, or you'll never get another another Jose Mourinho-style Porto team winning a Champions League. And that as beautiful as the football that Man City played, as admirable as it is for Real Madrid to have won all of those Champions League, is that it was almost success for the sake of it, rather than for the sporting thrill of it. I think what I'll leave you with is the sense that if you gave me a choice between living in a football political settlement that is led by Zidane or a football political settlement that is Cantonal led, I would vote for the Cantonal one every time. Because I think the Cantonal one has far more sporting and emotional happiness than the stratified 1% Zinedine Zidane Trumpism. Thank you.